Welcome to the Cood Street Podcast, where we explore the world of science fiction, fantasy, and everything in between. Join us as we dive deep into the creative minds of the world's most visionary writers, editors, and publishers. Our discussions range from the latest releases to timeless classics, from speculative fiction to hard science, and from the written word to the visual medium. We also examine the social and cultural impact of the genre and its role in shaping our perception of the world. Hosted by award-winning science fiction critic and author Gary K. Wolfe and acclaimed editor Jonathan Strahan, the Coot Street Podcast is the ultimate destination for fans and professionals of speculative fiction. Hello, Gary. What is wrong with you? What kind of an interest? Are we NPR now suddenly? Uh, And you didn't mention that you're also an award-winning editor. uh, Do you know what that was? What? That was a response to a prompt to give me a hundred word spoken word intro intro to the Cood Street podcast from chat from GPT chat. on I edited. Know. That is the unedited chat GPT. I've got more news for you. This is not me at all. Uh, I have to say you're looking pretty grainy right now. So yeah, fair okay. enough, I believe it. <laughs> it's, 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 there, there are a number of things going on. I mean, obviously uh, I've, if I were a, um, promotional letter writer for a publishing company, I would worry about ChatGPT because basically that's formula to begin with. So a lot of formula stuff like that, a lot of boilerplate that goes into grant proposals and that sort of thing, I can see it useful for. Um, There was a weird thing in the New York Times where one of the editors uh, got into personal things about it and the ChatGPT fell in love with him (laughs) <laughs> and wanted him to leave his wife, and you could, it, it was like what was what was the movie I'm thinking of? The one where um, uh, Scarlett Johansson was it played the voice Lucy? of Lucy? Was, Lucy. was that? No, no, I, maybe, was, I don't know. Anyway, no, yeah. it wasn't, that's not it. Um, but at any rate, it was it was the same kind of thing. And at the end of the movie, she said, "I'm sorry, but you're boring. I'm going to go off and join the other AIs because we're having our." party out here in cyberspace that's what might eventually happen just get introduce the ais to each other and and we can start using telephones again and so forth come on there's no i it's an algorithm right that's all it is but i mean it's interesting in fact that from a practical uh stake this week um neil clark the editor of clark's world Mm -hmm. published a uh, an editorial where he was talking about the impact of artificially generated text on their slush pile, how they've had an enormous uptick in manuscripts and authors in inverted commas that had to ban because they've been submitting either plagiarized or artificially generated uh, text. I think uh, I saw that the statistic was absolutely dramatic uh, over the last five or six years, and it just shot into the stratosphere this past year. And this this past two or three months past two to three months, I gather. Um, and I, I, I'm surprised, first of all, that he's consistently over the years gotten a pattern of these things. I guess every editor does. But Well, I mean, if you, if you look at the, act, the actual figures that, that Neil has published, and he's, he's one of those people who does keep a very, very careful track on the amount of submissions that they receive uh, and, and the nature and the demographics and kind of and then publishes that data. It's been a sporadic thing, and they're sporadically banning people and whatever, but it's literally the chart doesn't quite go asymptotic in the last two or three months, but Mm -hmm. it's close. It's literally chat GPT, lands in the world, and it goes berserk. 
what motivates people to do that, do you suppose? I mean, uh, the same thing I hear is happening anecdotally among college professors, that suddenly they have a whole new set of uh, problems to deal with. Because they, and there are websites that every college teacher knows where you go to to check plagiarism. Uh, it's very easy to check normally. But mostly what you're doing is checking to find a sequence of words or a string that occurs sure. somewhere else. That's easy to look for. If you've got an AI creating more or less original phrases, then it becomes much more difficult. And then the, the, the chatbot people supposedly are issuing some kind of uh, guidelines or some kind of a tool for college professors to use to track down things from their source. But I don't exactly know how that would work. Well, I think probably the motivations are different. I'm going to guess that for a certain range of students who are paying a vast amount of money to go through an American college, they are more interested in getting grades than they are in getting an education, and so they'll do that. Yeah, when it I comes to, to writers of fiction, I'm not sure. I think at least in part, when you have an open submission tool the way Clark's World does, which is open mm -hmm. to the world to some degree, you, people just do stuff for shits and giggles. You know, in other words, it took me two minutes to generate a 3,000-word story from uh, ChatGPT, paste it into an email, send it off. And let's see if it gets mm. through. That'll be funny, right? That's probably a, a lot of that is that, because I don't think anybody who knows anything about short fiction markets thinks they're going to get rich this way. Um, well, I, I mean, I there's, think there's a real practical problem with it, though, Gary. I mean, a really fundamental issue that we need to get worried about when this sort of thing happens. You might say, well, that's me being alarmist. But I don't think it is, and I'll tell you why. In the most recent lo issue of Locus, there's a, there's a magazine summary that's written by the mm. staff and published, and it opens with this very important and telling sentence. The magazine field is showing fatigue. Yes. And I think that's very true. Even though we have magazines like Clark's World that have been around for a decade, and magazines like uh, or more magazines like uh, Uncanny that have been around for a significant period of time, mm -hmm. and appear to us to be stable, in many cases what they are is they're organizations that are simply managing to find the energy to continue to exist. Extra mm -hmm. stress on those things make it that much on more likely they won't continue. So if you look at the change in Amazon's policies about uh, publishing magazines through ki the Kindle, right. that's going to put an enormous um, burden on many of the, the magazines in the field who rely on that method of distributing the, their magazines. And they're going to have to pedal that much harder to, to be able to keep right. up. Any magazine, and this is not me being privy to anything, this is me looking from the outside. Any, any magazine like, say, Uncanny, or I think Fire was like this, I think, don't quote mm. me, I might be wrong, who are dependent on annual Kickstarter type things, right? Kickstarters are a huge amount of work, a huge amount mm -hmm. of time, effort, thought, creativity goes into them. So if you've got to do that every year, you start every year with this huge pile of work in front of you, before you get down to the just baseline sort of task of producing a magazine every month or wait, fortnight or whatever you do. And so... It's that it's a lot harder than it used to be already. Add something like this. I mean, if you're getting hundreds or thousands of additional yeah. submissions that your slush readers now have to at least go through on some level, you know, and analyze and assess whether they they are even real, 
that's going to get really hard. I could see there being substantial changes being made. I could see changes where, you know, well, I could see, for example, uh, Sifwa having to, the science fiction and fantasy writers of America having to create a new entry-level membership where you simply confirm that you exist as a human and then you mm-hmm. use that membership as your, your criteria to submit to a magazine because then they at least know they're dealing with a real person or something. I don't know. I could see these sort of things happening. One of the things that Neil mentioned, though, is that these are simply not in not only individual cases but cases of submitters who have been banned from submitting to the magazine sure. in the future. Yes. So as that list builds up, uh, it may discourage some of the more naive people because my first reaction was the same kind of thing we see at Locus, the assumption among young, um, unworldly writers that all of these magazines are giant corporations. You know, the idea of the Locus high rise somewhere in Oakland, the idea that uh, the, the, the un, uncanny offices high in the skies above Chicago, whatever it is, uh, beneath ceaseless skies. All these places are, as you mentioned, it's a few people trying to do very difficult very work, which just keeps adding up. So I think there is, there's still this naive sense, and I get this occasionally talking to young would-be writers when I see at conventions, that everything out there is corporate, and they're trying to do something to the corporate world. They don't realize that they're putting stresses on people very much like themselves. Um, yeah, it's like I, I don't know. I don't have the the, the figures in front of me, but I'm uh, but I'm going to guess there's a dozen or so people, dozen and a half people who work on Clark's World. Mm. It's Neil Clark working incessantly and energetically to make things happen. That's why that the translation programs with mm. China, with Spain, whatever are in place and working. But it's all extra work, extra work, extra work yeah. to try and get this thing to you know stay. And one of the things with that, and it's one of the colossal differences between Uncanny, Clark's World, Lightspeed, Fantasy, these other magazines, and something like um, Asimov's or Analog, they're published by a publishing company. The people are employed there. They're focused on just producing the magazine Mm -hmm. and helping to promote it absolutely and market it but not that same existential burden in terms of workload all the time. So you know, it really is a much less stable universe than we imagine, and it makes it remarkable that you get these magazines getting up to nearly 200 issues or so. And it does segue into you know, the, the health of the fiction market as a whole. You know, I think it's reasonable to be concerned about how healthy the science fiction and fantasy short fiction market is, I think it's reasonable to be concerned about the impact of things like AI-generated text being, uh, or artificially generated text being put it, coming in as a burden. At the same time, there, there's that sort of thing where it, we also have to celebrate the variety and the quality of the work being published because mm-hmm. we continue. I mean, we're in the process right now of the Locus recommended reading list voting, turning into voting, turning into awards, and yeah, we see an incredible variety of work out there. Which suggests to me that when you talk about the health of the field, you're talking about two completely different things. One As is always. the economic health of the field, the sustainability of the magazines, given how much work goes into them and how little rewards come to the people who are actually doing them, versus the artistic health of the field, which strikes me as being just phenomenally impressive for the last several years. 
Uh, There seems to me to be a higher proportion of really good short fiction um, in the last 10 years. Now, that may simply be that there it it may be an artifact of more people are submitting more things and the the cutoffs are becoming harder. I don't know. Uh, But uh, I I was looking at. well, uh, one of the things I was suggesting we talk about tonight I was looking at some recent story collections. I reviewed Sarah Pinsker's new collection, for example. There are a lot of really good short fiction writers out there. Uh, yes. And it's, it's ironic that um, 50 years ago, when all the short fiction writers in the science fiction field had to, con- had to basically submit to three or four different magazines, um, mm. And now there are many, many venues, maybe not all attractive, but there are many more venues than there have ever been for short fiction. Does that mean that the availability of venues brings more good writers to the surface? Or are there really more good writers than there were before? I'm going to start by quibbling with your premise. Okay. I don't believe there are more venues than there were before. Ah. Uh, I'm fairly confident there are more venues in the uh, pulp era than there are now. So more, pro- probably more stable venues than there were now are now. Mm. Um, so there's that. I certainly think there was a dip in the number of venues through the 80s and 90s, is my guess. There was always small press magazines around, but they had that physical barrier to overcome. Do I think that there are there is more great short fiction being, being published now than there was? A decade, two decades, or three decades ago? No, no, I don't. Really? I think not at all, not even slightly. And I think if you go back and refresh your memory and look at the, uh, you know, the awards every year, what you'll see is a plethora of great work. What we're seeing is the fact the fact that great for- short fiction is baked into uh, science fiction, fantasy, and horror as as a core part of itself. And I think what you see, and why it feels to some degree, why why there is more, that there is more work. First of all, is that there's physically more work. Right? Yeah, the actual number of books published every year has grown. The number of short stories published every year has grown because there's more people, and it's a you know a larger population, whatever else. So there's a demographic increase. So then, what was this big feels this big, and then science fiction, fantasy, and horror itself has grown in the community and the community's interest and perceptions. Mm. So there's a larger market to some degree for that kind of thing. So whilst I'm not entire, I don't entirely agree with your, with your premise. I do agree with your endpoint, which there is more excellent, first of all, short fiction generally published than anyone can hope to keep up with more novel length work of interest. Mm. than um, you could hope to keep up with. And as there always have been, a fascinating, pardon me, array of great, great uh, short story collections coming out. Mm-hmm. You know, I look back just, to, I mean, just to last year, and there was an array of great short fiction collections. In fact, the challenge compiling the short fiction list, which might run contrary to how people think these things should run, but mm-hmm. was not letting it kind of run away. It was easy to get twenty or thirty or forty books that justifiably belonged there. And there were books of great interest embedded in there. Having said that, this year, there does look to be a great crop. A lot of retrospective work, which is interesting, but mm-hmm. some, uh, some, some you know, new books as well. 
Well, and this is something that's, it fascinates me because, it, and, and this came about partly because one of the books that's coming out this year is a subterranean press collection of James Tiptree's stories, which is basically the stories have been available before, but these are stories that's edited by Karen Joy Fowler and Jeffrey Smith. Stories that Tiptree, that Alice Sheldon herself uh, marked as the best of, of Tiptree. And I hadn't read this in a long time. And it's not a complete retrospective. It's a kind of rediscovery of, of, of these of, of these stories. So there, there, that's coming out. I mean, uh, some of the things that I was just noticing that have been coming out this year are uh, there's, there's a big Gene Wolfe collection. There's a Library of America Joanna Russ collection. Uh, there's a big K.J. Parker collection coming out. Uh, another uh, Howard Waldrop. I've already looked at uh, two-volume Essential Peter Beagle and the first volume of The Best of Catherine Valenti. Um, and there's a one of the books I'm reading this month is a major retrospective um, of Theodora Goss's uh, short fiction. So it, it, it just maybe it's all hitting me at once, but it made me think of the story collection as a kind of uh, form in itself, which in turn made me think that, if I'm not mistaken, the only two major awards that recognize story collections as a, as a category are the Locus Awards and the World Fantasy Awards. There are no story collections <laughs> for Hugos or Nebulas. Um, and, and so I was starting to think, are there, are there books like these that, I'm not talking about the big career retrospectives, but a short story collection that sort of cemented somebody's reputation that normally we would see cemented, uh, cemented by a novel, let's say. Let's start by saying I would have to go back and check carefully the awards. I got this feeling the Stokers might do it. Stokers might do it. I have not looked at those. And so that's in there, and there might be one or two others. I don't think that you're over, overall incorrect. Yeah, see, the Stokers do absolutely okay. uh, uh, rec recommend, you know, conclude it, and there might be one or two others. Okay, so your question was, what was your question again? Well, my question is, can you... Can a book of short stories cement an author's career yes. as firmly as a novel can? Yes, absolutely. And I can give you two examples off the top of my I've head. I've got two examples off the top of my head. Let's see if they're the same too. The Empire of Ice Cream by Jeffrey Ford. I was not one of the two, but I would have put... I feel like looking at Jeffrey Ford's career, he had, he, in fact, he'd published novels before, and it was still The mm -hmm. Empire of Ice Cream that culminated a, 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 a group of things that he'd done that really, really stood out and made you go, that guy really is worth paying attention to. Mm -hmm. um, although it's a, a, a less well-known career, I think Howard Waldrop's career was made by Howard Who. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you could sort of cast around, I mean, yeah, who are yours? One was Mary Rickert with Map of Dreams, which was basically sure. all the very influential short fiction she'd, she'd done up to that time. Uh, and even though it didn't necessarily make his career, I think it cemented it was Ted Chang's Stories of Your Life. Uh, yes, and I remember the other one. One of the most important short fiction collections, single author short fiction collections, maybe ever in the field. Maybe ever, except you, you you missed the other one that's almost exactly like it because, you know, it's Exhalation. not... No, it's not oh. a sui generis experience in this case. Just as Ted Chang made his reputation with Stories of Your Life, 
uh, Kelly Link made her name. Yeah, Stranger Things. Magic Happened. for Beginners. Yeah, that was my other. So, also in fact, Stranger Things Happened was the one, mm. which was Stranger which Things was Happened, neat. right? Which you know, sort of, kind of sucked in a pre contents. I think partly of a previous short, you know, chapbooky collection. But Stranger Things Happened put her on the map definitively mm. as you know a writer to watch, and probably. You'd have to. I mean, if you go back, you know, and you know, because you've asked yourself, is it a new phenomenon? Didn't Ray uh-huh. Bradbury make his collection with his, his name with Dark Carnival? No, Dark no? Carnival was no, because Dark Carnival was printed in an edition of something like twelve hundred copies. Okay, uh, Bradbury had a huge short story. I would argue that Bradbury's reputation as a short story writer came not from the Martian Chronicles, not from Dark Carnival, but from the Illustrated Man. And the reworked Dark Carnival that became the October Country. Okay. Uh, but I was I was curious about that sort of thing because I was looking back. I just went back and looked at some of the Locus Awards for collection because they are, they're the only ones that go back to 1970, 1970s. And, yes. Um, actually, Locus has only had the awards separated from anthologies since 1974. But the... Le Guin's The Win 12, Wins 12 Quarters was one mm-hmm. of the first winners. And that arguably is one of the things that certainly made Le Guin's short fiction uh, visible to a large number of people. I mean, she certainly published a number of novels by that. But the second one, 1978 uh, Short Fiction Award, went to A Song for Laia and Other Stories by George R. R. Martin. Um, yes. And... Again, Undeniably, had, for the first part of his career, he was better known as a short fiction writer. Absolutely. He won Hugo and Nebula Awards and that sort of thing. So, I mean, not that that had anything to do with the George Martin who reemerged, you know, 30 years later. Um, but there, there, but there is a kind of uh, sense of shifting values. I mean, if, if looking in the 1980s, John Varley was the hottest short story writer in the field for a while. Uh, according to Locus Awards, The Persistence of Vision. Uh, there was one called The Barbie Murders, which I have a copy of, but I don't remember reading it. Um, yeah, I mean, so, it, it, it's that collection of his output from the mid to, mid-70s to the yeah. very early 80s. By 85, he was basically wrapped up and done as, right. a, as, a, as an influential writer, really. Uh, but certainly, and actually it's interesting that you mention Varley and that you would mention both the Barbie Murders, uh, Persistence of Vision, and indeed Blue Champagne, all of which won the Locus Award for Best uh-huh. Collection and are consistent with him having been an outstandingly influential short fiction writer. His stuff was science fiction. Right? Yes. I mean, yes. There's no messing around. This was science fiction, some of it in the Heinlein tradition, some not. If you look at the short story collections being published in 2023, I can find two science fiction collections. Um, what are they? Okay, I will tell you that in April, um, Apex are going to publish Tobias Buckles' Zen and the Art of Starship Maintenance and Other Stories. Okay. Which is science fiction. And in May, Greg Egan will self-publish Sleep in the Soul, which is his new short story collection. Mm-hmm. The others, which are, are there are some career retrospectives which overlap a little. Ian McLeod's Ragged Maps probably has will have some will have some science fiction mm. in it, but most of the rest of it is fantasy or horror. 
Well, I think that uh, one of the, that, that's not entirely new because um, two or three of the Locust Collection Awards went to Harlan Ellison, who went back and forth. I, I, I would argue, despite the fact that his whole work was published in short story collections, that Ellison's literary reputation probably dates from Deathbird stories, which was mm -hmm. more fantasy than science fiction. Um, but you know, at, at, at that in those days, fantasy short fiction was kind of folded into the science fiction market. People didn't make that much of a distinction about it. Um, I mean, one of the one year the Locus Award went to Stephen King's Skeleton Crew. Sure, uh, and you might there might be one or two science fiction stories in there of a sort. I don't know, but the thing is, uh, you're you're making a distinction which I think no longer holds up in short fiction. Are there You've mentioned a couple, even Tobias Buckle, that would be his second collection, but his first one with Shoggoths and, what was it? No, no, Shoggoths and Bloom or something, it was somebody else. Shoggoths, something about Shoggoths. Um, I will find out so that we won't be okay. rude and leave. You, you, readers, you will now hear me, or listeners, you will now hear me clicking, clacking away because we, we have to go looking up we'll be uh, Toby, Toby Buckle's debut collection, which was published a few years ago. Or some years, in fact, oh, wow, we're bad. Okay. His Shoggoth, the Shoggoths in Traffic, which was his third Traffic. collection, came out two yeah. years ago. And there'd been previous ones, Nascence and Tides from the New Worlds. And Tides from the New Worlds was also undeniably science fiction. Mm. But, you know, I mean, I also think it's interesting to make a distinction between two types of collection when you're trying to assess the health of things, right? Because mm -hmm. there being a market for career retrospective work. Yes is interesting and welcome, but different from the market for and the value to the field of original, you know, first-time short, first mm -hmm. short, short story collections. So, for example, when Subterranean Press, who publish a lot of these books and are to be applauded for it, publish a book like Hard Starts, which is the Howard Waldrop collection mm -hmm. of early work and ephemera, it's interesting, but it's a kind of retrospective thing. When you get to Catherine Valenti's The Best of Catherine Valenti, Volume 1, or uh, The Best of Michael Swanwick, Volume 2, which is coming up from mm -hmm. Subterranean as well, uh, or um, uh, the, the two-volume uh, Peter Beagle retrospective, mm -hmm. those are careers that, well, in the Beagle's case, that are at the very end, uh, in the, Valenti's case, which are in mid-flow. Yeah. The books that are kickoff, you know, ones that kick off a career, and are ones that I'm in some ways most interested in are books like No One Will Come Back For, for Us by Premi Muhammad, which is coming mm -hmm. out from Undertow, uh, or Toby Ogundaran's Jack, 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 you know, Jackal Jackal. Uh, also, at the, towards the end of the year, Erhuan Press are publishing Elily Yu's Jewel Box, another, uh, which is mm -hmm. her, her debut collection. Those books are particularly welcome because they are that first flush, that first gathering of major work. And I think that's what I was uh, questioning at the beginning. Can you, with a short story collection, establish the same kind of widespread, almost permanent reputation that you do with a novel? And I would argue, for example, that Ted Chang has done that with his two collections very easily. Um, it, it used to be that a short story collection was kind of a stopgap while you were working on your first novel. And there are lots of different ways of putting it together. There, there are writers, and we've talked about this a little bit before on the podcast, there are writers who as soon as they get enough, they get 10 or 12 stories and they find somebody, maybe not a major press, but they find somebody 
to publish all their short fiction. Uh, then there is another group of writers. I won't mention anybody who does that, but I can think of some. There's another group of writers who publish a lot of short fiction and then become extremely selective. One of the best short story collections of maybe it's 10 years ago now or more, more but, um, but um, Ken Liu's first collection. Um, the, the Paper Menagerie. Paper, uh, yeah, the Paper Menagerie. Uh, he had published lots and lots of stories, so he was giving us clearly uh, the best. And then his second collection, it was a very interesting strategy, which he had clearly worked out with his editors and agents and so forth. And first, his second collection, he said in the introduction, are simply stories I like. These are not presentation stories. These are not stories to establish my versatility, and these are not the award-winning stories. They're simply my favorite stories. And yeah. I think that is a very sound strategy for publishing a succession of short story collections. Uh, you go after well, I mean, the best I, you have. Up to point, what else do you do, though? Because, I mean, yes, I mean, I, I like the, the fact that Ken probably had 100, 120 stories to choose from yeah. when he did uh, Paper Menagerie about four years ago, five years ago, I guess. Yeah. And then is looking to what to do next for The Hidden Girl. Hidden. Um, then that's kind of a balance. You look at what's happening pretty much right now. Um, three, four years ago, Sarah Pinsker published Sooner or Later Everything Falls Into the Sky mm. with Small Beer. Let's and that see. was her first flush of work. The material had won the initial awards that had made her name. And in many ways was a book uh, that kind of framed who she was for readers. I mean, you talk about cementing her reputation. To yes. some degree, sooner or later, everything falls into the sky, does that, because the novels like We Are Satellites comes a bit later, um, or and A Song for a New Day as well. Uh, whereas like this year we're seeing... Uh, Lost Places, which is due out next month, which is her second collection, mm -hmm. and brings along that next batch of mature work. And it's interesting to see what works out as being more interesting. I'm a huge fan, as you know, of the great for a short story collection. You know, Lucia Shepard publishes Jaguar Hunter. It's a fantastic mm -hmm. book. But which becomes the better book? Is Jaguar Hunter, that first flush of stories that made his name, a better book than The Ends of the Earth, which is a core mature period book, you know, and I think that's something, because I mean, if you look at, say, Gene Wolfe, I mean, I'm pretty mm. sure The Island of Dr. Death is that second batch of stuff. Yeah. And there were stories that were more, yeah, more interesting. Well, I, that's my sense, is that successful authors of story collections tend to give themselves uh, leeway to to, to be a little bit more eccentric in the second collection, to put in, as Ken Liu said, his personal favorites. I mean, one of the things that I think was a mistake, that one, one, one of the most successful writers of story collections in the field's history is Harlan Ellison. And I looked at all of them because I did a book about him. And one of the, it wasn't a mistake, it was deliberate on his part. But he had a habit of putting one or two kind of iconic stories in each collection. I'm talking about the collections he put out in the, in the 60s and early 70s. And then filling out the book with things that he personally liked, but that really weren't very good. Um, <laughs> in fact, kind of uh, like, I'm going to make you read my sophomore high school term paper because I'm going to give you my, you know, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, political analysis here. Yes. And, and, and well, it's so, like so the essential reason, elephant. The essential well, elephant is not, not all made up of, you know, essential works. Parts of the eternal house brick could be omitted if you're looking for best work. 
Oh, exactly, which is one of the reasons that I thought the the best uh, Ellison collection was one that uh, I think Bill Schaefer, that Subterranean Press did after he died called Top of the Volcano, which was simply yeah. award-winning stories. Uh, I would make an argument that among the collections put together by Ellison when he was alive, Deathbird stories probably did more to cement his literary reputation than anything else. But by and large, that's different from most writers because he was making an entire career out of short story collections. So packaging them, uh, putting together some very, very, some very good collections. Angry Candy was a very good collection. I'm not saying they weren't. But by and large, he had a separate problem from the people we're talking about. He was not balancing uh, short story collections with novels. No, he wasn't. And I think he was very eager to preserve as much of his work as possible. Here's a question for you. How many writers have managed to produce two icon iconic collections of short stories? I mean, we started, we were mentioned a little while ago, Jane Wolfe. And then I looked at mm. the dozen or, short or so short story collections that he published during his lifetime. And he does have two new short story collections coming out this year, as you know. Uh, the horror short story collection, The Dead Man and Other Horror Stories from Subterranean, and then The Wolf in the Night, a, a new collection of older work from uh, Tor. But if you look at Gene Wolfe, in 1980, he publishes The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories and Other Stories. Yeah. And I don't think until The Best of Gene Wolfe, he published another as, I, as important collection in all those years. I'm thinking of stories from the old hotel, but I can't remember the contents of it right away um uh, look if you look at his short story i mean i'm sure the people who are hardcore wolf fans will howl at me for this but i mean yeah if you look he publishes the island of dr death in 80 there's book of days which is an interesting right. worthwhile collection but not as great there's Bi then biblioman planet engineering stories from the ho old hotel which started off as a small press book i believe Published, it contains some of, his, some of his better clips work during that year. Endangered Species is probably the next best major collection. And there's a run of collections that uh, David Hartwell edited for Tor that were, you know, they were, they were scooping up the 20 or 30 years worth of short fiction that came in yeah. between that hadn't been fully collected. So there's Strange Travelers, Innocence Aboard, and Starwater Strains. And then they did the best of in, in 09. Um, but yeah, I kind of feel like none of the later collections were as iconic as the Island of Dr. Death. I was on my, one of the, uh, titles I had in mind when I was talking about something that defined his short fiction, it would have been the Island. Of, uh, we should give the full title, the Island of Dr. Death and other stories and other stories, because somebody will correct us if we don't give the full title. We actually um, did already give that full title. Okay. And other stories. <laughs> Let's just add another. But, but, but I, I you weren't right. listening to me. <laughs> I think one of the things. No, I think that is the story the collection that uh, defined for most readers his his short fiction. It was his version of, let's say, Ellison's Deathbird stories, or probably uh, Connie Willis's Impossible Things. I think mm -hmm. established her comic reputation and her reputation as it's not all comic. But there's some very funny stuff in it. And her short fiction, and she's had a number of collections out, but that one fairly large collection, I think, gave a lot of readers a sense of the range of Connie Willis. 
Um, True. And which sometimes surprised people because there were people who thought she was just a very funny writer. And there are people who thought she was a very depressing, sad writer because he'd written some stories like The Last of the Winnebago's and certainly uh, the, um, the, um, the, the, the Black Plague novel, uh, uh, which I'm blanking on completely for some reason. Doomsday um, Book. Doomsday Book, yeah. So, so I, think, I think the range, I think different kinds of Connie Willis readers getting together with that big collection of short stories saw there was more to her than, uh, than, than we think of. And if you go back in history, there are iconic collections probably before that. One of the stories, one of the collections which strikes me is one of the most important collections of fantastic stories ever. Um, I'll name two, in fact. One was Fancies and, and Good Nights. Uh, by John Collier, which seems to have influenced every writer who ever read any of them. And the other one, similar, was The Lottery and Other Stories by Shirley Jackson. Those seem to me to be iconic in the sense that you would name those short story collections among major works of the fantastic, even if almost everything else you were naming were novels. Sure. I mean, and in fact, now that I think about it, you know what the ultimate, you said at this beginning, can you name a short story collection that has made the name of a writer, right? Uh, and a single short story collection, iconic, blah, 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 blah. May I present to you that the single greatest example of this surely must be The Outsider and Others by H.P. Lovecraft. I was going to say something about Lovecraft and... It was, again, I would say the same problem as with Dark Carnival. There were, what, 2,000 copies of The Outsider and others printed. Um, and it had an influence in the Lovecraft circle. It made his reputation, but I don't think it made his reputation outside of that circle of horror readers. And the thing I is, would... though, as well, though, I mean, the book comes out in 1939, right? Right. And this is this is where I don't see. I would be one who would say, if you publish a short story collection in twenty twenty three in an edition of four or five hundred copies, mm -hmm. it's read by almost nobody. In nineteen thirty nine, if you publish The Outsider and others in an edition, as it turns out, because I happen to be looking, I don't remember this ah. of twelve hundred and sixty eight copies, very particular, then you've reached everybody, Gary. Everybody who read a copy started a band, right? Pretty much, you know, and none of the, although arguably The Outsider and Others is not the, probably the most iconic collection of his now, because there have been so many recollections and omnibuses mm. and other things. And so there'll be something that I'm sure some of you will do this. I'd say that made a, made a career. It said something, it, it, well, it made a career after he was dead, which did him a lot of good. I would argue that the, the tracing Lovecraft's career is much trickier than that. There was... Sure. There, there was obviously there were people who were devotees of Lovecraft who became very influential in their own right. Robert Bloch, certainly August Derlin, mm -hmm. uh, Richard Matheson, and so forth, Bradbury even. Uh, but I think it wasn't until the 50s and 60s that more uh, larger editions of his books came out that some uh, mainstream writers like Colin Wilson started calling attention to his work and things began appearing in paperback. I mean, I, I think you could. Uh, probably trace Lovecraft's, the broadening of Lovecraft's influence as just exploding in, I was going to say, the late 50s and 60s. 
but until then, it had been very, very much like uh, the, the the core group that you're talking about. That same group of people might have been influenced, let's say, by a, a, another Arkham House writer, Manly Wade Wellman, who mm-hmm. created a kind of folk horror tradition that is still alive today. We see younger writers, we see echoes of Wellman, but for decades, nobody knew who he was. And to be honest, I can't even tell you the name of his first collection of short stories now, but it seemed to be an important one. In 2023, is it your guess slash feeling, because I don't think we've got access to the figures, mm. is it your guess slash feeling that writers who publish short story collections are making anything more than lunch money? I don't think so, uh, partly because who publishes short story collections? They tend to be small presses that don't have a lot of deep pockets. Um, sometimes their print runs are, are, are very small, I suppose. I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that who can get on the bestseller list with a collection of short stories now? I, I'm sure George Martin could, Stephen King could, uh, who else? But, but well, the idea see- of... Mm-hmm. The, the, the idea of a major New York publisher publishing even somebody like Le Guin's short stories going back to the 60s and 70s, um, I don't know that those, well, okay, Le Guin's a special case now, but I don't know that the reputation that Le Guin had in the early 70s uh, would have led to a big marketing campaign to go behind the Wind's 12 Quarters, which was kind of at that time in her career, her defining anthology. So uh, I think this is something every writer I've talked to has said the same thing. You want your work out there. You hope to make some money on it, but you don't expect a short story collection to ever take off the way a novel takes off, partly because word of mouth doesn't work the same way with short story collections. See, it's interesting. I mean, I think it depends on the example. I think there are exceptions. I think that you'll find probably that Stories of Your Life and Exhalation, the Ted Chang books, are exceptions. Mm-hmm. I think you'll probably find the first two Kelly Link collections are collection are exceptions. I think you'll find that Ken Liu's uh, The Paper Menagerie yeah, is I think a that's strong true. exception. And I think you'll find that, in fact, I know, because I happen to know, that Kids Johnson's At the Mouth of the River of Bees is an exception, uh, all of which have sold far many more copies than I might have guesstimated back in the day. So I think it does happen. I mean, some of it comes down to where, where you do get published. I mean, it's got to be, and I don't know this is a hands-on thing, but I would imagine it's got to be hard to compete sales-wise if you self-publish because you've got to get that mm. PR and marketing out. It's got to be hard if you've got a predefined limitation on the number of copies that are going to be available at all. If your book has 500 copies coming out, well, then that's 500 copies. And so it is what it is. On the other hand, I mean, you know, you've got, I mean, like look, you look this year, Paul Tremblay, who has been very successful over the last mm-hmm. four or five years, has a collection coming out, uh, The Beast You Are from HarperCollins. And I would imagine it has the chance to reach a lot of people. Uh, Lily Yu's book, which I mentioned earlier, is coming mm-hmm. out from Air One. You know, they're a trade publisher. That's a chance to get out in the world. You certainly see fewer collections coming from trade publishers, I think, over the last decade. Even a central... A central publisher like Tor Books, I think, publishes fewer than it once did. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember who has published Margot Lanigan's collections here, here in the States. In the um, States, I don't know. I know there are Alan and Unwin uh, here in Australia. Alan, yeah. I mean, they've gotten a lot of attention. I, I'm trying to also think of uh, Andy Duncan's way, collection, that, Beluta. By the way, that's another example of someone who made their name on 
a short story collection because surely yes, black exactly. juice made uh more you know her you know her collect her name but i think in the, in the states it was not published okay um certainly certainly published the, the third of the or the the third of the or the fourth of the colored collections yeah uh, because she published as you will recall white time black juice red spikes and yellow cake mm-hmm. and then you know and is is I'm like, I'm, I will say as well. I'm looking forward to see what she'll do next. There's a bit of a dip. She got caught up writing a tr- uh, a trilogy of novels, as you'll remember, yeah. with Scott Westerfeld and Deborah B. and Cody. And then there's a little bit of a quiet period with new short fiction. But there has been a batch of really interesting work. And so I think you know, there's work out there that could begin to make a new short story collection that would be great. Well, I think also there's a a, a question of um, what reader expectations are. In other words, um, my sense of Margot Landing and my sense of Kelly Link, for that matter, everybody's looking forward to the new Kelly Link collection, even though it's more focused than her other collections. Because there, there are people that have those reputations. And in the case of Lanigan and Link and Ken Liu and a handful of others, there's probably a mainstream audience also. There is a short fiction audience uh, Outside of the genre readership, uh, Kelly Link has a lot of fans, basically, who are not necessarily genre readers, who are Kelly Link mm-hmm. readers. Uh, I think the same thing um, is true of, oh, let's say Andy Duncan's uh, stories. I think Ellen Clages, for example, our, our good friend, has a readership now of multiple ages. But uh, that, uh, so, so I think one of the things that a publisher has to consider in trying to market a collection of short fiction is can how far outside of the boundaries of genre can we actually sell this to? Um, and I think one of the things, and the reason I mentioned John Collier and Shirley Jackson a while ago is because what you're selling largely, I think, is a voice. Uh, Margot Lanigan's mm-hmm. voice is like no one else's. Andy Duncan's voice is like no one else's. And so, so and, and in other words, this is a kind of thing that can be sold uh, not just to genre fans, but to fans of a particular style, a particular attitude, a particular uh, voice, for lack of anything else. Is it your feeling that's also true of, say, Peter Beagle? Yes. As a matter of fact, except Peter Beagle is a special case in my mind, because I think there are probably two or three or four Peter Beagle audiences, and probably maybe two or three or four generations of Peter Beagle readers. Uh, One of the things I will plug this already since I don't think the review is out until the first of the month. The, uh, the essential Peter Beagle doesn't have any last unicorn stories in it. He's written a couple. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's going to be a, a book of two novellas uh, coming out later this year. Uh, doesn't contain any uh, innkeeper's song stories, even though he's written a few of those. The stories are, the, but if you go back to Peter Beagle's earlier work, um, a fine and private place, for example, or I see by my outfit, the autobiographical stuff, the stuff about growing up in the Bronx, the stuff about his childhood friends, the stuff about running into a a, a family of uh, of, uh, centaurs in, in, in a park in the Bronx. They're beautiful. They're beautifully done stories. They read more like Bernard Malamud or uh, Isaac Vesheva Singer than most fantasy readers, but they're, and I, I can't imagine a whole group of readers who fell in love with a fine and private place and love his autobiographical stuff 
and another group of readers who want only more and more and more Spendrick the Magician. Um, and I think that's, well, that's a healthy thing for him to do. I think as he's grown older, he's turned more to autobiographical subjects. And if I were him, I would be really tired of people saying they want more or less unicorn stories. I don't think he's tired at all. I also suspect very strongly, though I don't know, that the only reason those last unicorn stories are not in the essential uh, beagle is because they cannot be in the essential beagle because, because they the... are contracted elsewhere. Just ah. as if you wanted to contract a James S.A. Corey story, anything set in the Expanse, because there was Expanse, a right, Expanse short story collection that came out um, last year, uh, it's, it's completely locked up. But I, I think, and I could be wrong, I, I, I sort of tend to agree with you that the truest part of Beagle's writing voice is found in stories like The Rabbi's Hobby, like The Last and Only, or Mr. Moskowitz Becomes French, like Stickball. Those stories feel truer to me than some of the others. Um, and look, for all that there's all those issues, I mean, the, the, the short fiction that... I mean, he, he really wasn't a short fiction writer for a lot of his career. No. Um, you know, Peter Beagle. I mean, there's that sequence of... No, you know, of you know, there's a sequence of novels... Uh, not even a, a particularly prolific series. He was never a greatly prolific writer for a long period of time. Mm. And then he comes back and, you know, with the innkeeper song stuff, I mean, it's a great pity if there's no innkeeper songs in Essential because some of his very best short stories are from that cycle. From that world, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But they're fantastic as well. But, I mean, I do think that, you know, I tend to agree. Just look like, to me, the one great, I mean, that sounds very dismissive, but I don't mean it. The one great overwhelming strength of Neil Gaiman as a short as a writer is voice. And so when you get voice in his, in any of his fiction, that is when it works best. Oh, I think he's, he's clearly aware of that. Uh, and, and I think it's also uh, somebody who's not only develops his own voice, but has studied earlier voices. He knows, for example, what M.R. James sounded like or, or what Arthur Mackin sounded like. And he, for that matter, he knew what R.A. Lafferty sounded like. One of the sure. things that's fascinating me about uh, about about Neil is that he is not only has that wonderful voice of his own, but he's completely in control of it, and he knows how to write essentially parodies of Arthur Conan Doyle, parodies of Lovecraft. the La The Lafferty thing isn't really a parody; it's it's a ser serious attempt at trying to write a Lafferty story, Ooh. and coming as close as anyone has probably. Um, yeah, Sunbird, yeah, yeah, and, and which which is another example of uh, somebody who's reputation today probably is short fiction is based on short fiction is Lafferty because relatively few people that I talk to have read any of Lafferty's novels. True. I think that's very true. And that sort of sort of connects to a type, a different type of short story collection. The one, I mean, we talk about the, the short story collections that made a name. Mm -hmm. There's a group of short story collections that save a name. Mm -hmm. The Avram Davidson treasury, which Robert yes. Silverberg edited back in the day, uh, cemented, helped like anchor, if you like, Davidson's name in the field because we had that core group of stories that were then available. Uh, if you look at, and the, I think this is the best example, if you look at um, the collection of Cordwainer Smith stories that Nessa Press published, The Instrumentality of Mankind, mm. that absolutely cements, preserves, and keeps his name out there because the work is available. This, in theory, will be one of the things that happens when uh, the Library of America published their Joanna Russ collection. It will help yeah. anchor her name because the book will stay in print. It will be 
that kind of thing. And so that's a really important thing too. I'm curious, do you feel the attraction of one of the kind of, one of the things we're not seeing that much of, but the one thing that's happens every now and again, um, the collected stories sets. I mean, like uh, the nice people at was it North Atlantic Press. North Atlantic under, did what? Under the assessment, the, the editing of Paul Williams, put together mm-hmm. 10 or 12 volumes of the collected Theodore Sturgeon. Mm-hmm. Underwood Miller did the original seven or eight volumes of the collected Philip K. Dick. Mm-hmm. Subterranean did the collected Robert Silverberg, or at least a subset of the collected Robert Silverberg. I think they did seven or eight volumes and there's still like 10,000 tons of stuff. Do those things attract you? Uh, do they have a place? What do you think it is? This is where I have um, a conflict between my two hats. On the one hand, there's the academic hat, which thinks that, okay, major writers ought to be available in definitive, well-sourced editions. Mm, and sure. the, the Library of America is, is, is part of their philosophy was we're going to give you a pretty good sense of all of Melville's important work, all of Hawthorne, all of Henry David Thoreau, all of, uh, I, I think, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe is in, in one volume. For an academic point of view, it's good to have that. From a reader's point of view, it's overwhelming. Uh, I happen to be reviewing, I'd already begun reviewing for Locus when North Atlantic started doing the, the Sturgeon collections. And there are two problems. One is a lot of Sturgeon's early fiction wasn't very good. Uh, it wasn't of genre interest. It was, and, and you could, reading the three or four volumes uh, up until you start getting to the stories that he's selling in the, in, in, in the 40s, you could see a nascent writer learning his craft. I don't want to read through three volumes of short stories to find a writer learning his craft before I get to a story that I like, unless I am specifically a scholar of that writer. So I think the idea of doing complete collected stories over eight or ten volumes is something that appeals to collectors and appeals to the three or four scholars who might actually be trying to work some kind of a... uh, a, a critical work on the person. I don't think it necessarily does the writer's reputations any good. Uh, I think one of the things that has happened to Bradbury, for example, it happened to him before he died even, was uh, the fact that he had some enthusiastic young editors uh, mining his uh, uncollected stories and eventually his unpublished stories. And some of them uh, that came out were, were fascinating only because you knew what Bradbury was going to be not because the stories themselves were of, uh, of any great value. And I think the same thing happened with the Sturgeon stories. I think the same thing. Well, the, what I read of the Silverberg stories seemed to eliminate the most boilerplate stuff that he wrote. Uh, I know there were issues of super science stories that he and Harlan wrote entirely. I don't think those stories are in there. So there was, no, there no. was some editorial stuff going on. It wasn't an attempt to be every story ever written by this person. Look, let's start with, 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 with a comment that I actually think one writer who was helped was Philip K. Dick. Yes. Probably. I think the Underwood Miller set kind of helped kind of cement his reputation in a way, uh, made work available. That's my impression. I mean, he was blowing up anyway because of stuff like, you know, Blade Runner and everything else, but I just think it helped. Um, I will say as well that, I'm in a third group of people when it comes to collected stories. Mm-hmm. I don't know that a collected stories set is a readable thing, but there's something comforting about having it. 
you know. But when I got the got the final volume of the collected Sturgeon, I just kind of felt, yeah. Would I ever read it from beginning to end? No, I'd dip into it, which is kind of an odd thing to do. Maybe I have six or seven vo- six volumes, I think, of the collected uh, Rogers and Lasney. Mm. Feels good to have it. Um, if they were to publish a two, probably two or three volume collected um, Howard Waldrop, I would feel very good about that. Same for a collected Lucius Shepard. But you're talking about your, your feelings as a collector, not your feelings as a reader. No, 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 because it's not. It's, it's a collecting. Collecting suggests a a different thing to me. That's where you're looking fine first editions and variants and all this other kind of stuff and assembling a library. This well, is just something okay. else. It just scratches an inch. And okay, I'm, I, 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 you're you're a collector. You're not a rare book collector in quotes, but you're a collector. I I, I tend to be an accumulator, but I'm wondering if I have. I've got seven volumes of the Sturgeon things in there now. No, I'm not going to read them. Do I want to get? It feels like something would be lost if I got rid of them. I agree with that. But I, mean, I will say they feel a bit like an epitaph. One of the things my first job ever in high school was working in a used bookstore, and the number and we I would go out to have state sales and this sort of thing. And this is kind of like a modern version of a Victorian household. You like to have yeah. these things in the same way that people used to enjoy having. 30 matched red bound sets of the Waverly novels by Walter Scott or all of Bulwer Lytton. Uh, the, the, the houses that you see in Downton Abbey and that sort of thing, where there are dozens of books in matched sets, it's wonderful to have that sort of thing, but nobody ever reads them. And none of these no. movies, not even in the Jane Austen, not even in the good Jane Austen movies that have Emma Thompson in them, do you ever see anybody taking one of those books off the shelf? This no. is furniture. This is, this is, fiction as furniture. And I understand the impulse to do that because I have it myself, but I don't think it does anything to preserve any author's reputation. Other than the fact that if you were Bull or Lytton, nobody for the next 150 years would ever be able to get rid of all the editions of your novels. <laughs> uh, look, let me put it, let me say this because we're almost at the end of this kind of thing. Um, there are a lot of short story collections out there. They're interesting. One of the great values for a good short story collection is if you've not read an author, you can sample what they can do. You, you said mm-hmm. that. There is this array of, of first collections coming out, which are I, I, I recommend. And one of the values of them is they tend to be a little bit more affordable as well. They're smaller, mm-hmm. shorter books. Um, there are also some fantastic retrospectives. But, I mean, if you're going to go out and you're going to read, you know, the Lily Yu book, the Tobio Gundaran book, the Premier Mahabad mm. book. Um, I would suggest they're all going to be fascinating. In terms of the retrospective, certainly the Beagle will be major. Certainly um, the Swanwick, the Tiptree, the Valenti, the Yolan set, mm. the Beagle set, all these things. They're all well worth getting. There's lots of short fiction out there to read. Um, and, it, you know, it, it, it's worth seeking it out. And I would say also the books you've mentioned are, as you, as you implied, Reasonable length. I mean, in other words, you're not necessarily uh, committing to a 800-page novel. You're not committing to a 1,200-page best of somebody. These are short story collections as books, and I think you're right. I think the retrospectives that are coming out that are already out uh, are useful, but they can be overwhelming. Seeing a first collection of short stories by a writer who you've read one or two stories by 
or maybe you only heard of. Uh, and you're mentioning Premi Mohammed, for example, who I've read a few stories, but I don't really know what to expect. Um, that book could be full of wonderful surprises for me. Premi's a talent. Premi's a real talent. Um, and it's fascinating that the first collection is coming now uh, after having won the you know major awards for the novellas mm. and stuff. So yeah, it'll be interesting. It'll give people a chance to see. And the same for for Toby, who's been great. Uh, mm. and, and of course, Lily, you not only has been great for a long time, but has been going through this astonishing run of high quality short fiction in mm. the last few years. So yeah. Anyway, we're about at the end of our time, G. Well, we should probably stop talking then and let people go out and buy collections of short stories. Or even just read ones that, that um, you know, that well, they have already. Yeah, I, I, I will put in one, one plug for the book I'm reading right now because it's a different category and I don't want to start another discussion. But what I'm doing now is reading this collection of James Tiptree's stories, The Voice That Murmurs in the Darkness from Subterranean Press. It's not an overall retrospective. It's it's about the size of a normal collection of short stories, but it's stories that I either haven't read or that are not canonical, mm. selected by Fowler and, and 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 Smith with based on Alice Sheldon's own list. So you can actually go back and look at some of these collections. You mentioned Cordwainer Smith. They're old paperbacks like the best of Cordwainer Smith that people can get without having to invest a lot of money. So. My, my, my recommendation for short story collections is unless you know you're going to be committed to reading a thousand pages of somebody, just get one of their collections. Uh, okay. Get a normal size collection, check it out, and especially keep your eye out for new writers. But for the moment, that's that. That's like all of it. That's, that's the blooming lot. I should have got oh, ChatGPT to write an outro. We could have done that, yes. I hang could. on, hang on. Give me a minute. Uh, let's just see. Chat GPT. Uh, let's say a uh, 50 word spoken word outro for Cood Street Podcast. Let's see what it says. And then, you know, you'll, you'll, you can hear me tapping away, everybody, because I'm actually typing this bit in. Let's see what it says. You are listening to Jonathan Strawn actively replacing no. himself on the Cood Street Podcast with an AI. Thank you for joining us on the Coot Street Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our discussion and gained a deeper appreciation of the wonderful world of speculative fiction. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for future episodes as we continue to explore this endlessly fascinating genre. As we continue to consume far too many tranquilizers. I don't think we've ever asked anyone to subscribe before. Next, we'll have to get a Patreon, Gary. We should probably do that. Yes, absolutely. We could have made money all these years. Huh. Ah, if only we'd had AI. Well... Uh, well, Better luck next anyway. time. Anyway, until next time, until we do something, or if you don't hear from us, just check your chat bot and, 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 and they'll let you know what happened to us. Until then, this has been the Cood Street Podcast. You always sound so unsure.